few days after I initially recorded this podcast, a quote by Howard Zinn had continued to be in my heart, and I want to share it with you. I learned after I looked it up that it's actually from a speech that he gave at John Hopkins University in 1970. Here's what Zinn wrote about that moment and the context for the speech. In November 1970, Zinn had recently been arrested at a protest in Boston at an army base in order to block soldiers from being sent to Vietnam. And he was scheduled to debate with the philosopher Charles Frankel on civil disobedience at John Hopkins University not long after. He was supposed to appear in court in connection with the charges resulting from the army-based protests, and he said that he had a choice. He could show up in court and miss the opportunity to explain and to practice his commitment to civil disobedience, or he could face the consequences of defying the court order by going to Baltimore for the debate, and he chose to go to Baltimore. The next day when he returned back to Boston home, he was about to go to his morning class, and two detectives were waiting outside the door of the classroom. They hauled him to court, and then he spent several days in jail. So this excerpt is from the speech that he gave that night at Johns Hopkins when he chose to engage in this conversation instead of show up in court. Civil disobedience is not our problem. Our problem is civil obedience. Our problem is the numbers of people all over the world who have obeyed the dictates of the leaders of their government and who have gone to war and millions have been killed because of this obedience. Our problem is that people are obedient all over the world in the face of poverty and starvation and stupidity and war and cruelty. Our problem is that people are obedient while the jails are full of petty thieves and all of the while the grand thieves are running the country. That's our problem. We recognize this for Nazi Germany. We know that the problem there was obedience, that the people obeyed Hitler. People obeyed. That was wrong. They should have challenged and they should have resisted. And if only we were there, we think we would have showed them. Oh, but we think America is different. That is what we've been all brought up on. From the time we are this high, you tick off one, two, or three, or four, or five lovely things about America so that we can't be disturbed very much. But if we have learned anything in the past 10 years, it is that these lovely things about America were never lovely. We have been expansionist and aggressive and mean to other people from the beginning. And we've been aggressive and mean to people in this country. And we've allocated the wealth of this country in a very unjust way. We've never had justice in the courts for poor people, for black people, for radicals. Now, how can we boast that America is a very special place? It is not that special. It really isn't. That is our problem. Civil obedience. Greetings, friends. This is Margaret Ernst. I'm recording today from North Alabama, where I'm staying for this weekend at a lake that was once a long, wiggly river. It's shaped almost like the tail of a rattlesnake. The river was dammed up during the 1930s, during the New Deal, to provide a source of water for Birmingham, about 40 minutes south of here. I'm in a major transition. Many enormous things have happened in my life, 
in the past month and within weeks I'm also moving back to a place where I have many close friends and where I'll be joining the pastoral team of a church. It's where my partner and I intend to stay and to take root. We're moving to Philadelphia, which is the closest place to home for me. I'm greatly looking forward to this transition, but it also means saying goodbye to the South, where my grandparents were from and where my mother grew up. I came to Tennessee to go to divinity school four years ago. And being in this region these past years has taught me so much. It's particularly taught me deeply important wisdom and new forms of solidarity while I was immersed in, in working with working class immigrant organizers and other Southern organizing comrades. The goodbyes have already begun and things are changing. I can feel it, but for now I'm here sitting on a screen porch, listening to a hard rain pellet down on the roof as it brings down the temperature just a couple degrees. When the rain lightens a little bit, it's drowned out by a chorus of crickets. None of this is uncommon here. You're listening to The Word is Resistance. This is a podcast where we ask what is the word for white people who are trying to follow that homeless, brown-skinned rabbi living in a vassal kingdom under military occupation of a mighty empire. Those words are attributed to my friend and fellow contributor, Nicola Torbett. In other words, what does it mean to follow Jesus for white Christians who century after century and Sunday after Sunday have gotten our gospel confused with white nationalism and white supremacy? This podcast is for everyone, but it's oriented towards white people intentionally because we believe that white folks, especially white Christians like myself, need to be talking to each other about how to use our scripture to support the work of liberation and ending white supremacy. We believe this is vital, life-saving work for all of us. The Word is Resistance is a project of Surge Faith and specifically Surge Action. Surge stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice, an organization organizing white people across the country to resist white supremacy. We welcome feedback from everyone and especially feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. The music that you'll hear throughout the podcast is a recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's from a movement choir practice organized by the group No Enemies in Denver, Colorado in 2014, and it's led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're so grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. I'm going to be talking about the text from Amos from the lectionary this week. Amos, a prophetic figure whose visions and social critique date back to 8th century BCE in ancient Israel. That feels so very far away from the screened porch in Alabama. You see, here is not far from where the Trail of Tears started in North Georgia when the Cherokee and Choctaw in the 1830s were deported from their land. There is, tragically, a long legacy on this land of deportation. This snake-like lake is also not far from one of the detention centers in North Alabama, where for years immigrants have been held, shipped from throughout the South. People are swiped from their families and sometimes within a few short hours are in detention in North Alabama before being sent to Louisiana to a private prison where they are often held for months on end before being deported. So in some ways, the times of Amos, when in the prosperous kingdom of Samaria, the rich sold the poor for a pair of sandals, 
That doesn't feel very far away at all. The lightning is now beginning in flashes across the lake I can see. In storms like this, and in times like this, with concentration camps on the border and prisons in our backyards, with intense grief and rage in our hearts that seems too much to bear, I wonder what we can learn from darkness. The northern kingdom of Israel in the time of Amos was known as Samaria, and its capital was Bethel. In the time that the book of Amos is set, things are going pretty well for Samaria and for its southern neighbor, Judah. Or at least things are going well for some people. It was a prosperous time, but it was also a vastly unequal time, with travesties of an inequality we hear throughout the book of Amos. A relatively small kingdom in the scheme of things, Samaria was conquered, you see, and its capital city was destroyed by the Syrian Empire around 720 BCE. We don't know a lot about what happened next historically, but in the context of the biblical narrative, the old kingdom of Samaria is, for all intents and purposes, wiped off the map. By the time of the setting of Amos, the kingdom is riding high, with King Jeroboam II as king who we'll hear about in this text. So who's Amos, though? Amos, we're told in the beginning of this book, is actually from Judah, the kingdom down south. And he first raised sheep, and now he raises fig trees, or in some translations, sycamore trees. We find out in the text that Amos was not part of the prophetic industrial complex. He wasn't a professional prophet. But he had felt an inexorable pull by God to speak against the injustices he saw around him. Now, what's important about the book of Amos is that it was actually recorded after the destruction of Samaria, the northern kingdom, and its capital by the Assyrians. This means that the memory of the work and words of the prophet Amos were resonating and written down in the midst of people trying to do what all humans do in the wake of trauma and loss. They were asking that big, gaping question, why? Why did this happen to us? Why do we fall to Assyria when we thought God was on our side? Why did Samaria get wiped away into oblivion under the boot of yet another empire? What did Samaria do wrong? And how could we, we being the kingdom Judah, or those who were left, how can we not make their mistakes? We see through a lot of the prophetic books in the Bible that the thought leaders of Israel, those who survived, were trying to make sense of their present reality through the lens of the past, and they often used the frightening fate of the northern kingdom as a lesson. Prophetic literature was written in a time of a theology that is rooted in Deuteronomy, the covenant at Sinai, and the laws and commandments that God will be with the people unless they transgress. So within that framework, asking the question, what do we do to bring on this destruction, was a perfectly reasonable question. What the answer was and what the lesson is depends on the lens you're reading from, but in the book of Amos, the lesson is presented as crystal clear. 
We're told that the destruction of the northern kingdom happened because its elites were flagrantly disobeying God's commands for justice and righteousness. The text for this week starts out with a very specific vision the prophet Amos has. It's a vision of God, presumably in the human or humanoid form, standing next to a tall wall. And God is holding a plumb line. A plumb line is used in carpentry to measure things. It's very simple. Tie or hold a string from the top of a wall and wait, put a weight or a plumb on the bottom. The weight of this plumb, I had to look this up by the way, it's not the fruit, it's a plumb. Just look it up. <laughs> it helps ensure that the whole length of the wall has been measured from top to bottom. I actually find the International Children's Bible pretty helpful for this, this piece of it. So verse 8 from that translation reads, Then the Lord said, See, I will put a plumb line among my people Israel to show how crooked they are, and I will not feel sorry for them any longer. In other words, I will not give them a pass anymore for their unjust ways. I will not sympathize with them. The plumb line is a way of seeing how the kingdom measures up to the covenant made at Sinai. This vision of God that Amos has here is kind of like a biblical equivalent of God saying, listen, I've got receipts on how things have been going here, and I don't like it. A more full transcript of the conversation between God and Amos might have gone something like this. Remember that time where I asked your people's leaders to care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger, and now, look, some of you have summer houses, well, Others go without anything. Some of you are living in luxury without a care in the world right now, while others starve and rot in prison for crimes they didn't commit or never should have been made crimes at all. Look, all of this is about to change. All of it is going to collapse. And the rich and the poor, everyone is going to suffer. So, Amos, what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to tell? In the verses that come next, we switch abruptly from the scene with Amos and God on the wall and the plumb line to an encounter between Amos and the highest priests in the capital of Bethel. He is the most powerful religious leader in the northern kingdom of Samaria. This priest, Amaziah, is warning the king that Amos has been prophesying against him. He's been saying that King Jeroboam and all of Samaria is bound for destruction. And where was Amos doing this, this conspiring against the king? Right here in the capital. How dare he, this carer of fig trees, this farm worker who says he's a prophet. So Amaziah, the priest, doing a very good job of protecting the reputation and the interests of the prosperous king, tells Amos to go back where he came from. Here's verses 12 through 13. O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there. 
but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Some translations here say the national temple. Amos has a pretty great comeback. I'm not even a prophet, he says. I'm a herdsman. I'm a dresser of sycamore trees. I plant figs. In last week's podcast, Nicola asked us to imagine ourselves not as Jesus' disciples, but as villagers who reject him. And I want to do something similar here. Instead of identifying with Amos, I want you to try to put yourself in Amaziah's shoes for a reason. Imagine you're a high-ranking religious professional, probably very well compensated, with the most powerful man in the country on speed dial. People listen to you. You can make things happen. You have a lot vested in the way things are. Or maybe you're an assistant to Amaziah, not quite as important. You're a paper pusher in the king's court, but still well insulated from the pain outside and below you. society runs on. From that perspective, what's with this raggedy guy who says he's a prophet from the south causing such a stir and shouting about the status quo, saying that destruction is coming? Things look pretty good from your vantage point. What, What if what he says is true? What if everything is about to change? What will you lose? Will you lose your summer house or the fellowship you got when you got promoted to one of the top positions at the temple? What if people start paying attention and they start questioning things and challenging why there's so much of a difference between the lives of you and your friends and the people at the bottom whose misery is intertwined with your luxury? Oh, no, we, we can't have that happening here, especially not here not here in the capital near the center of everything, where people are doing very important things. So take your prophecy somewhere else. Do not prophesy here. Do not prophesy here, on the White House lawn, or on the steps of Congress, at the Pentagon, at Trump Tower. Take your prophecy somewhere else. Do not prophesy here. You're at City Hall where we're busy getting things done. Do not prophesy here at the denominational conference or at the university dean's office. Do not prophesy here at the bank headquarters where our narratives of numbness are working just fine, thank you very much. The stock market is roaring and the shareholders are happier than they've ever been. Do not prophesy here. Because if you preach here and people start listening, From the people on the streets to the folks cleaning the floor and and answering the phones, the loss will be too great. The false truths will come crumbling down. There will need to be a reckoning. People will demand a power shift. And then everything in this carefully rendered pyramid, this fragile balancing act of daily injustice and terror, which serves us quite well, all of that will collapse. Do not prophesy here.
Have you ever been close to a center of power and served by its interests so that you were afraid you would lose something if you listened to critique? Or if you listened to what was going on in the news? Maybe it was a church or a city or a town or a school, a university. I remember a time like this. It was actually the last time I lived in Philadelphia. I had just graduated from college and I was working for the mayor of the city. I was an AmeriCorps member working on community projects with parks and recreation and Meals on Wheels programs, so I was relatively unimportant, but nonetheless, my office was just one floor under the mayor's office, and I would see the man who was mayor at that time pretty regularly when I was parking my bike outside the city hall and when he would get out of his black suburban with security guards. I wasn't being consulted on anything by him, but I felt important. I would go up to print things in the mayor's office sweet and steal a delicious brownie from a tray that his assistant made. I kind of felt like I was in the king's court. I later learned that the mayor answered to even greater powers, that it was really banks and energy companies and other businesses that were the real obelisks of power. But the mayor's office did certainly have real power in the city, with the capacity to pass policies that affect millions of people's lives for good or for ill. This was 2011, and in September, following the lead of people in Zuccotti Park in New York City, folks started camping outside City Hall. First, in just small trickles of people, and then more and more came, until by the time the air was crisp with fall, there were hundreds of people gathering every day in Occupy Philly, marching two or three times around City Hall per day. They were shouting chants about the power of the people and this is what democracy looks like and we are the 1%. I heard the marches outside my office window on the first floor while I answered emails on a desktop in City Hall. And soon I couldn't help myself but to steal out on my lunch breaks, join the marches and come back inside. I started sitting in Occupy meetings after I left work for the day. People in Occupy Philly were discussing, discussing things that were part of the conversation in Occupy encampments throughout the country. The importance of race and class and decolonization and the problem with the word Occupy. I started feeling a lot more alive listening in on these conversations than in my meetings at long conference tables in tall buildings in my job for the mayor. By the time it started getting colder that season, things changed. The mayor I worked for made a press announcement saying that conditions were squalid and the encampment outside City Hall was a public safety concern. And for that the good of all people in Philadelphia, the no camping rules would start to be enforced with a deadline. I remember reading around that same time eerily similar reports from other cities across the country I knew that the person I had trusted and grown to like personally, the mayor, was using the exact same talking points used across the country to clear out Occupy camps at whatever cost. The night of the deadline, I rode my bike as fast as I could to City Hall when I anticipated what I knew was coming. The occupiers prepared, linking arms and deciding who could and couldn't be arrested, using mic checks to keep discussing strategy. For a while, things were quiet. 
but then not only police on bicycles, but also police on horses, something that no one anticipated, started moving in on the camp. I stood off with my bike somewhere on the sidelines. I didn't really know anybody in the protest because I hadn't formed that many relationships in Occupy, at least not deeply. I was more of a spectator. I don't remember everything that happened that night, but I remember screams. And later on social media, I saw that someone's foot got stomped on by a horse. By the end of it, after people were arrested, I was too tired and soul-sick to bike home. So with my bicycle resting on the wall of a subway train, I noticed a hollow feeling in my stomach. It felt like something inside of me was crushed along with that protester's foot. It was a belief in what my superiors at the mayor's office told me. That trust now crushed had been replaced with a rock that was growing, a desolate awareness of just how easily truth-telling, truth about how society is structured and who benefits and who gets hurt, how easily that truth can be and is stamped underfoot as soon as it gets inconvenient for those who benefit from the power structure. The next morning, the police and other city workers cleared everything down from the Occupy encampment. Tents, personal belongings, flyers, meeting notes, everything, all signs of what had happened there. And today, at the same city hall, eight years later, where all this happened, there's a privately run recreational and retail area. It's financed by big companies downtown, and there's a nice skating rink in the winter and some retailers and food sellers and fountains for kids to play in when it's hot. But amidst this perfect picture of urban pleasure and sweet children playing, the private security of Center City District, innocently clad, but with a direct line to Philadelphia police, is a constant presence. But what sends shivers up my spine even more so is that when designing this new area around City Hall, the designers highlighted a newly designated free speech zone, a small area where you could hold a small protest. The message in how the space is now being used is clear. Do not prophesy here. I can just see King Jeroboam telling Amaziah to set up a free speech zone outside the temple for Amos and his friends, a holding pen to contain their cries against injustice as he makes a speech behind bulletproof glass on a national holiday. Do not prophesy here. Go back where you came from. For me, dwelling at that threshold of Occupy and the offices of City Hall itself was one of several moments in my life that woke me up and shook me, making me realize that much of what I had been told was not true. And when I realized that, I couldn't look away. It was the moment when I also knew I could very easily and rationally totally buy into the mayor's talking points and a lot of what I heard around me inside City Hall. I could have believed that these people gathered protesting was an unsightly thing and unnecessary. 
that there were more respectable ways to raise awareness about a cause, and that capitalism wasn't really such a bad thing anyway. Or I could believe what I saw with my own eyes, that policeman on a horse riding into a small crowd of people with their arms linked to each other, a system coming down, very literally and physically making visible the violence that is always operating under the surface, the violence that comes clear when direct action is taken against the system. Amaziah is right to be worried about Amos, because if people start believing what he says and see the violence that's always been there in the society the whole time, people will break rank quickly. I know I broke rank. I broke rank in major ways, and I've been trying to continue to live into that choice imperfectly. Like Nicola told us about the messengers sent by Jesus in last week's New Testament texts, this time in history is an absolutely crucial time to be listening to prophets who remind us of Amos. This is an absolutely crucial time to be listening to prophets who don't prophesy because it's their job, but because they must tell the truth to survive. Who are the carers of fig trees and sycamores among us whose visions and critiques challenge not just the far right, but even the comfortable liberals and centrists and professional social change groups and progressive churches. These times are way too dangerous, way too cruel, and bursting with way too much possibility to not be listening to prophets. So my action for you this week is to commit to supporting an unfunded prophet like Amos, someone who is speaking truth to power and calling forth institutions and structures to account for white supremacy in this pivotal moment. Prophecy is not just the work of individuals, but prophecy is communal. So find a grassroots group doing liberation work led by people of color, operating outside the usual nonprofit industrial complex, and amplify their work in some way. I also want to ask you to read throughout the whole book of Amos. It's short, I promise. You can read it on a commute if you ride public transportation, or maybe in a waiting room, or even, even a series of bathroom visits on your phone. So read through the whole book and really check with your gut how this ancient prophetic literature works on you to stir what God is calling you to do in this moment of history in even bigger, riskier ways. I'm thinking about John Bergen's podcast from a couple weeks ago, too, about the importance of a big ask. What's that ask for yourself? As you read Amos's cries to the northern kingdom, warning them of destruction coming, Think about what you are willing to put on the line to help our society get in right alignment with justice and righteousness, which, if we listen to Amos, will flow like a mighty stream. What's a big thing you can do for liberation right now that scares you? Something that could cause you to lose something, whether it's money or an investment, a title, even a job, but something that's worth doing because you can't let yourself live without doing it. In the transcript, I will link to information about upcoming actions to raise a moral voice against concentration camps on the border, and actions to defund ICE and to cut off those who are profiting from immigrant detention. A week ago, several Jewish-led groups across the country took direct action at ICE offices and detention centers to demand just that. 
Survivors of Japanese internment camps also, a few weeks ago, and their descendants protested outside Fort Sill, which is being planned to house migrant children, and was the site of an internment camp in World War II. A question that has been plaguing me for a while is what is the particular call of white Christians in this time? So much of the racist violence and policy that has happened in the past two years, from white supremacist terror attacks to the Muslim ban to abortion bans, is happening in our name, in the name of our religion. What is this season of history calling forth in you, in us? What is the demand of our faith? Whether you're a paid preacher or an unpaid preacher, or you're sitting in the pews, or outside the church, planting fig trees. I will close today with this question because I want you to help live out the answer with me. So as you think of your answer, remember first that you are not alone. Think of who you have by your side. Think of who you need by your side. Breathe. And then, do what you need to do. Thank you for listening. Our sound editor this week was Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max, as always. Mm -hmm.